Oh, welcome to the Capitol Church. You have come on a Sunday that's a really special one to me. I think it's a special one for you, whether you know that or not. Th these two guys here, Troy Nesbitt, Brent Avercamp, um, are part of the leadership team here at the Capitol Church, which means uh, their love and service of you has started when we planted this church. These are guys who speak into uh, decisions that we make, things that we do as a church, uh, their impact and fingerprints are all over this place, and they have just loved and served from a distance for a long time. Uh, we are part of a network that we talk about at times uh, that plants local churches near major universities and starts uh, salt companies, college ministries around the country. Uh, that all started really with these two guys in a room dreaming of what could be. Uh, Troy Nesbitt is the president of the Salt Network, which is the network that we're a part of. Uh, he also planted Cornerstone Church, which is our sending church uh, in Ames, Iowa. And so it, it is a, a privilege that we get to have these two guys here. It's a privilege that we get to hear from Troy Nesbitt, a voice that I'm really excited to influence our room. And so I'm going to pray, uh, and then we're going to hear from Troy. Father, uh, it is a good gift that you have uh, brought two men that have had such an impact in this room here before us. Uh, thankful for these guys, thankful for how they've followed you, have they given everything, leveraged everything they have to see more people uh, know you, follow you, love you, and, and it's just a good gift that we as a church uh, here on this Sunday just get to step into a space where we can be influenced. Uh, we're thankful for Jesus, what he's done in their lives, and what that's meant for us, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. OH, I've been waiting to do that for a long time. See, see my gear here? You know, you, it's not that you guys can't spell Ohio, but it's that you like to help each other, right? So I, every once in a while, I'll, when I'm traveling, I will wear this because it's really nice. Your colors are awesome. I'll be walking to the airport, and I'm not used to people just catcalling me, for sure. But whenever they see the gear, they go, OH! And I'll just, <laughs> and... This one kid said, O-H! Then he came up to me and he said, O-H! Pointed at my gear and I went, oh, 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 I, 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 oh! I was so, I didn't know if I was going to get it right. Pretty excited. Are you guys going to win it all this year? I mean, you only got one game left, really. We don't count Michigan State, do we? I mean, they're bad. But do you think you're going to beat Michigan and get... Get on by and get through, 9-0, 11-0, all the way this time. You know, sometimes we disappoint at the end, but not this time. I'm a little disappointed today myself, okay? So let's don't talk about your football future. Uh, this is my third time at the Capitol, and here's what I'm disappointed in. I got to be led by one of the greatest worship leaders in our network. You guys have one of the greatest church planting teams that we've ever sent out. You have one of the greatest preaching pastors that we have. And today I'm here and I have to listen to me and not him. That's, that's a disappointment. So today we're going to be talking about something that probably you know already. We're going to be looking at our Bibles, Matthew chapter 17. Or if you have an app, open up to Matthew chapter 17. And probably a passage that you've heard taught many, many times. I'm not going to have a whole bunch of new insights into it. Maybe I will. Let's just see. But it, what we're going to talk about today is this generation that is emerging had better be the hope of the world. Have you noticed that every generation that emerges tends to diminish the generation that came before them 
and despise the generation after them. You know, the greatest generation despise the silent generation. The boomers despise the busters. The busters despise the Gen Xers. Millennials to the Gen Zers. Your generation. Or some of you are millennials or some of you are even beyond the boomers. But I want to say to you, since the greatest generation and how arrogant were you to name yourself that to the silent generation, you know what's been happening in the church? It has been dying and declining ever since to the point where you're being left in your generation. The sickest, most anemic, the least influential church in North America. And in fact, there are two continents, two countries where Christianity is dying and declining. We're one of them. And I just want to say that if you're in a millennial or Gen Z from a boomer, guys, I'm sorry for the state of the church today. Who is that on? Less than 3% of your campus does anything Christian. Less than 5% of your city is gathered in the name of Jesus this morning. Whose fault is that? It certainly not yours. And I hope today to give you some hope from the scriptures that you will embrace God's call on your life because God is not only looking for individuals, he's looking for generations who will say yes to him and be world changers. This generation that has gone before you has left you in a bad place. But I believe Jesus wants you to be world changers, and he started it from the very beginning. Let's read our text, chapter 17, verse 24 to 27. Probably many of you have it memorized. Let's look at it together. It says, when the disciples came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter, and he said, does your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he said. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to Peter first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the earthly kings collect tariffs and taxes? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But, so we won't offend them, go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, take the first fish you catch, when you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. You guys really familiar with this passage, y'all? Ever memorized any of these verses? What's the point? Why is this Bible? <laughs> is the point to say yet again that the only time that Peter is ever able to catch fish is when Jesus commands him to go fishing? Because as a fisherman on his own, he caught very few fish. But as a fisherman empowered by Jesus, he caught full nets. And now he's cast in one hook, caught a fish with money in its mouth. Is that the point that Jesus knows the fish that has money in its mouth? Any of you guys ever been fishing? <laughs> I tell you, every fish I've ever caught after I read this story, I've looked in its mouth, never any money. Is that the point? Here's the point. This is why it's Bible. Even though this is maybe the most obscure passage 
and maybe even the entire New Testament, it holds a critical clue that is so important for us to see about the age of the disciples. You see, in Exodus chapter 30, talking about the temple tax, the law states that every Jew who went to the synagogue was to pay a half a shekel in the census of the temple tax if you were older than 20 years old. So look in the text. Who came? All of the disciples. Who paid? Peter and Jesus. All the disciples were there. Who paid? Peter and Jesus. And I think we have a misnomer about the age of the disciples. We think they're bearded guys. We think they're older guys. We think they're guys in their 30s. Not true. In fact, as you're going to see this morning, they were likely men who were 15 to 20 years old. Now, does that change the way you see the chosen? <laughs> teenagers. Jesus called 12 teenagers to follow him. To change the world. And Jesus is doing that yet again this morning. How do we know that? There are other clues in the scripture. In John chapter 13, verse 33, maybe a verse that you do know. Jesus calls his disciples, though, little children, almost infants. Let me read it to you. Little children, I am with you a little bit longer. You will look for me just as I have told the Jews. Where I'm going, you cannot go. I give you this command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Wouldn't it be odd if Jesus in his 30s, and we know that Jesus was in his 30s, was looking at his peers in his 30s and said, Hey, little ones. Hey, little ones. And he refers to them most often in this term. We know historic Mishnah, the authoritative rabbinic commentary on Jewish oral tradition. You begin scripture studies at five years old. At 10 years old, you study the Torah or you study the Mishnah. At 13, the Torah. And at 15, if you were chosen by a discipler or if you were chosen by a rabbi, you could continue your education. It was the college degree of the day. Otherwise, you went to be mentored by your father in his family business. At 18 years old, you were given an arranged married wife. And at 20, you could pursue your own business or trade. And at 30, you could become a rabbi. So, guys, in light of that, since that was the tradition of the day, even though Jesus was a tradition baker, don't you think that that's why he waited to become a rabbi? He had to be 30. And didn't he do it like everybody else would do? He picked a handful of teenagers and literally said, with you, I will change the world. What's another clue? You want to know the number one argument that the disciples had when they were among themselves? Go ahead, shout it out if you know. What did they fight about more than any other thing? Who was the greatest? Guys, they're with the goat. But have you ever been around teenagers? Have you ever been around high school athletes? I love them. They think they are awesome. Look at me. Look at me. I thought I was an athlete in high school. You know why? Because I was a two-year starter on my football team in small-town Iowa. 
and I thought for sure I was going to play for the Dallas Cowboys. You know how it is? They think that they are great. And here the disciples are with Jesus and constantly arguing about who was the greatest. And then, guys, can you imagine being a 30-year-old man, especially in this culture, and then trying to get your mom involved in an argument? That's exactly what happened in Matthew 20. The mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, she came to Jesus. You ever met teenage moms? Especially in sporting events for sure. Man, they're bulldozer moms, and they think that their kid is going to be a professional athlete. And here's what James and John's mother did. She went to Jesus, and she said, Lord, have you seen my boys? I, I know everybody's fighting about it all the time. But certainly my boys, James and John, they are the greatest. And so when you come into your kingdom, because we know you're going to come into your kingdom, would you let one sit on your right and one sit on the left? <laughs> you know, I, I would love to have known Jesus' facial expressions at this time. What would you say to a mom like that? And he said, well, that's not for me to determine. We know nine of the disciples' fathers, a reference usually reserved for young men still living in their father's house, and we know two of the moms. Only Peter was married. We see that in Matthew and Mark and Luke because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. In order to have a mother-in-law, you have to be married. But none of the rest of the disciples is it even mentioned that they had, they had any wives or children or families. Do you see the picture that I'm painting here? What do you think? What about Matthew? Wasn't he a tax collector? Didn't he own a home? Well, maybe he is the exception but it's also possible that his dad was a tax collector and he at 15 was apprenticing into his dad's business so that he would become a tax collector as also. We don't know. Maybe it was his parents' home that everybody was invited to. Here's the point. Jesus chose 12 teenagers. Trained them for three years and he called them to be world changers. Just let that sit in the room a little bit. Does it change the way you see the Great Commission? Jesus is now gone. Does it help you understand a little bit better the fear that they had, the immaturity that they had? When Jesus said, I'm going to leave you, does it help you understand a little bit more when they said, we're terrified, you can't leave us. What are we going to do? And he told them about the Holy Spirit. He said, because when I do leave you, I'm going to send a helper, a comforter. I could just be with you, but he will be in you. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 and 13 says this. During those days, Jesus went out to a mountain to pray. And he spent all night in prayer to God. And when daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them who he also would name apostles. It was not uncommon to have disciples. In fact, a lot of the rabbis had disciples. But you don't on day one call your disciples apostles. Do you know the difference between a disciple and an apostle? 
Disciple means to be a learner. And everybody that had a mentor was learning from their rabbi. And Jesus said, I want you to be my disciples. I'm going to be your rabbi. And he chose 12 to make them disciples. But day one, he called them apostles. You know what the difference is between a disciple and an apostle? An apostle is one who's sent. A disciple is one who's learning. So day one, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I am going to send you out. Do you guys pray the 1002 prayer? When Jesus requested that we would pray, he said, look, see, the fields are wide unto harvest. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the harvest. It's a Greek word, ekbalo. Ekbalo. There's your Greek for the day. You know what it means? To push out. Do you know how eagles train their babies to fly? Well, they raise them in their nest and they feed them some really healthy food. And once they get to the right age, they push them up on the edge of the nest and then they nudge them out. Have you seen an eagle's nest? They're way high. And at that point, what is the option? You fly or you what? Die. And Jesus said day one to his disciples, I'm going to train you up, and then I am going to send you out. And Jesus continues to do that. Why do you come to Jesus but to represent him? If you're coming to Jesus so that he'd give you your best life now, you're coming for the wrong reasons. You come to Jesus because he's the savior of the world and he holds your eternity in his hands. But if you come to Jesus expecting that he will just make your life awesome, then you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Because Jesus calls you to him and then he sends you to others so that you can call others to him as well. Jesus on day one said to his disciples, you are apostles. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. He was a young man who saw the stoning of Stephen and then gave his life to Christ supernaturally in Acts chapter 9. And he said, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Only set an example to believers in all of life. We definitely know about the Apostle Paul, that he trained young Timothy and young Titus, who were likely teenagers that would come with him, and then he entrusted them to the church. And I want you to know, guys, it has been this way for all of time, from Jesus till now, every major movement of God that has happened in this country has happened on the backs of two things, believing prayer and young people. Have you ever heard of this little thing, the Reformation? In the 1500s, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Martin Luther, when he nailed the theses on the wall, was 32 years old. John Calvin was 25 years old. They began a movement that is still having ripples effects today. What about the university system established in the 1700s? Have you heard of these schools? Yale, Harvard, Princeton. All seminaries started to train pastors for the colonies in our country. Have you heard about the Great Revival in the 1800s? D.L. Moody, C.T. Studd, I love that name. What about the Great Awakening in the 1700s? George Whitfield, he was 21 years old, and Jonathan Edwards was 19 when he began to pastor a church. Are you familiar with this little university, Ohio State University? 
It was founded by a man named Manasseh Cutler, who was an American pastor in the Congregational Church, involved in the Civil War, and later wrote anti-slavery documentation. Were you familiar with that? Your university, founded by a pastor. You want to hear about some of your neighbors? Michigan? You love them, right? They were established by a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. Cincinnati University was also founded by a godly man named Daniel Brake. Indiana University was founded as a state seminary, and its motto was light and truth. Syracuse University, a university we just planted, was established to train missionaries to send overseas. The University of Florida, even, was established as a seminary first. Purdue's third president was a Presbyterian pastor, and the basis of all of that started at Lane Theological Seminary. Guys, you shocked by this? Is your university just a bastion for gospel good and gospel grace? And if you come here, you probably will get saved because all the professors know, love, and follow Jesus, and all the faculty know, love, and follow Jesus, and all of them probably were trained in the best seminaries in the world, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. What has happened? The foundational prayers of those people that sit in this place sit on every young man and young woman who will embrace those prayers for themselves and say, God, bring revival back to this place. Restore us to our roots. God, bring it back. Probably if you go on your campus, I've been on your campus, adjacent to the campus are huge churches like Collegiate Methodist, Collegiate Presbyterian, Memorial Lutheran, or First Baptist, or whatever they are. And how many students are attending these churches every Sunday? Maybe a handful. And how much gospel and how much Bible can you get in all these places? Maybe little to none. Instead of standing with the scriptures, what are they doing? They're standing opposed to the scriptures. But when those churches were planted, what were they doing? They were reaching the next generation because they knew if they reached the next generation, it could change the world. And now students don't want to go there because there's no life there. There's no gospel there. There's no meaning there. By the 1950s, new movements began to come up. Are you familiar? Campus Crusade for Christ, Bill Bright, Dawson Trotman, who started the Navigators, student leaders, Stacy Wood, who started InterVarsity Fellowship, all of those in the mid-50s, for what? Because they wanted to see a new movement of God going to the ends of the earth. And now Camps Crusade is almost on every campus in North America and literally sending missionaries to the ends of the earth, starting churches there. The same with the Navigators, the same with InterVarsity. But guess what's happening with crew and InterVarsity and Navigators? All of those are also dying and declining. They're not going up and to the right. They're actually going down and to the left, just like the church. Guys, I think it's time for a new movement of God. I think Jesus 
is calling all of you. Follow me, and I'll give you a cause to live your life for. The generation behind you or ahead of you has left it in bad hands, but Jesus is calling you to take it and move it to the ends of the earth, a new movement of God. We believe that we do what we do because God has always been calling young people to follow him and to give their lives for him and to become world changers. That's why we do what we do. In 1987, we started the first salt company, and we had no idea what we were doing. 1994, we started our first church. 2010, we planted our first church at Iowa University, which was a really hard thing to do for a Big 12 school, their rival. It'd be like you guys caring about Michigan, right? And wanting them. To, I, I thought, well, you know, if they're going to get saved, it's going to have nothing to do with us. And yet, God transformed so many lives at Iowa University. They went to you and I, and then we went to northern, northern Iowa, and then we went to Drake and DMEC and Cedar Rapids and Minnesota and St. Thomas, and now there are 29 churches and 30 salt companies, and right now I am standing in a church in Columbus, Ohio with a salt company full of people who want to be world changers. How awesome is that? But guys, we're not even hardly making a dent on what God wants to do. And you're a part of that. So why am I talking about these things? D.L. Moody, maybe you're familiar with him, maybe you're not. Here's what he said. The world is yet to see what God would do with one man or one woman who is fully devoted to him. And he was just quoting out of Second Chronicles. It says, The eyes of the Lord are roaming throughout the whole earth so that he might strongly support those whose hearts are fully his. One man or one woman fully devoted to Jesus. Or one couple. And right now the scripture says, The eyes of the Lord are looking, even in this room, looking for someone whose heart is fully his. I'm saying God today is calling you. God today is calling me. He's approaching us and he's saying, will you follow me? Because I want to make you a world changer. One of our churches is called the commons. You know, you guys are the capital. They're the commons. You guys are like, I don't know, capital is pretty cool, right? they they're called the commons, and they, they got their name out of Acts chapter 4, verse 13. I'm going to read it to you. It says, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. I'm going to give you another little Greek lesson. The uneducated and untrained men is a Greek word, idios. Does that sound like any... English word, do you know? Help me. Idiot. So I'm going to read it in English. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were idiots, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. What they saw was idiots 
who weren't acting like idiots. They saw people who stood out in their culture. They knew that they were fishermen, and yet these fishermen were world changers. These fishermen were just a handful of the ones who Jesus left the world in their hands. I love that name, the commons. What does it say in 1 Corinthians? Not many of you are wise, not many of you are powerful or noble, but let these words sink on your life if you're a follower of Christ today. Chosen. Chosen. In weakness. So Christ, not us, would be our boast. You have a lot of people at your university who still think they're great. But they're just people. And one day all of us are going to stand before the holy judge of the universe and give an account of our lives. And if you understand the gospel and you know that his call on your life, he's called you to come to him so that he can send you away from him. And it's not about you, it's about him. And our dream and our vision is to see a church planted at every major university in North America. Why? Because we want to have a whole bunch of churches and we want to see a whole bunch of college students come to faith. Well, yes, but it's way beyond that. We want to see a movement of God that literally would change the world. Guys, are we doing okay? Is culture okay? Are there wars and rumors of wars? Do you sometimes feel empty? Do you sometimes feel like your life doesn't have the meaning that you think it should? Have you tapped into everything the world has to offer, success and power and relationships, and come up empty? And sometimes even in your faith, you say, I don't know if this Jesus thing is working out or not. It's because we become Jesus consumers, making ourselves the center of the world. But Jesus called his disciples. He trained them for three years. And he called them not to be about them, to be about him. And that's what God is calling us to today. That Jesus will begin a movement that literally would change the landscape of the world. Now maybe that's lofty but let's talk about it like this does Columbus need a movement does your campus need a movement guys I would love to see a thousand students gathered in salt company in this place wouldn't that be cool you know what we do we'd say yes oh but how many gather at the horseshoe Have you noticed how small we think about God in our culture? If you grow a church to be 2,000, you'll be called a mega church. Wouldn't that be awesome? I would love for you guys to be a church of 2,000. Wouldn't that be great? Any of you guys from a city of 2,000? Do we call that a mega city? No, we call it a hole in the wall or a bump in the road. Or we boast about our one traffic light. I came from Iowa State University, and uh, I don't even know what our chant is. Uh, uh, what's our chant? Uh, I don't know. 
Power, that's it. Cyclone power. Oh, gosh. I do everybody else's. I don't do ours anymore. I, I should do that. Cyclone power. Cyclone power. And, and uh, the football's not great. Okay? I think we could beat Rutgers too, though, right? So the football's not great, but 55,000 people go to watch it. The basketball is a little bit better. 14,000 show up to watch that. But if only 2,000 showed up, you know what they'd say? Where is everybody? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could reach into what God sees and say, God, would you create a movement that would change the landscape of the world? And is that too much for us to ask of God? Or is it actually the kind of thing that God has done from the first time he chose 12? What was that big old church that Jesus had planted in his three years of ministry? You remember what they were gathered at in Acts? 120. Is that a good church planter after three years to have 120? Well, there are way more than 120 here, right? But what happened to that group? The Holy Spirit of God fell on them. And all of us are here today because of what God did with that 120. Wouldn't it be awesome if you guys would begin to pray for your campus and begin to pray for your city that Jesus would change the world from this spot? I think that'd be awesome. And it begins with you. And he has called you. Follow me. And I will make you to become a world changer. If you're a fisherman, follow me. I will make you to become a fisher of men. God help us. Jesus, thank you for the Capitol Church. Thank you for the disciples. Thank you for calling us. Lord, help us to not think about what we're going to do in the future. Help us to think about what you're going to do in us today. And Lord, I believe this morning that you're speaking to hearts. I believe this morning that you're calling everyone here, wherever they are, whatever stage of life they're in, to recommit themselves to you. To hear your voice. To say yes again. We say yes to you today, God. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fall on the Capitol Church. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fall on Salt Company. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would fall on every marriage in this middle school, every man, every woman, every child, that you would change us and that you would help us to be a part of changing the world. Do it again, God. Do it again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.